I think there's a reason why, like, you tend to get into it as a teenager if you're going to get into it at all. Uh, because the, I think, like, there is something inherently melodramatic about musicals as a form. You know, whenever the emotion is too big for dialogue, you sing. And when the emotion is too big for singing, you dance. And that's <laughs> sort of, like, you are just open to it when you're younger. Especially if you're, like, in this sort of, like, irony-saturated sphere, like the 90s were, or today. Hello, lovely listeners. Kirk here with another off-week bonus episode for you all, a conversation with author, video essayist, and noted musical theater enjoyer, Lindsay Ellis. Among her many pursuits, Lindsay is co-host of the tart and enjoyable musical theater podcast, Musical Splaining, where she plays the role of expert to her musical theater newbie co-host, Kaveh Teherian. She was also a guest on last year's Strong Songs episode about Town, and I wanted to have her on for a chat ever since we did that, so I did. Back in March, we hopped on Zoom. We talked about all sorts of things from why people love musical theater to the importance of blocking and stage design, the sad saga of the Beetlejuice musical, and what makes Hades Town special. We also get into the long legacy of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Just as a reminder, bonus episodes like this are rewards for hitting certain thresholds of patrons on Patreon, so it's entirely thanks to my patrons that I'm able to take the time to make extra episodes like this one, so if you like this episode and want to hear more like it, go to patreon.com strongsongs and sign up to support the show. All right, let's get to it. Hope you enjoy the episode. It was a really fun conversation. Here we go. Lindsay Ellis, welcome to Strong Songs. Hello. Hello. How's it going? How's your plague? It's uh, my, it's it's going fine. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so still the plague. Since I didn't make podcasts, <laughs> and and it's and it's fine. All right, so we're here to talk about musical theater. You are the splainer, mm-hmm. the musical splainer. Yeah, the the, the uh, <laughs> professional hobbyist, I guess. Like, let's not confuse me with an expert. But... No. Yes. Yes. Um, what was the first musical that you ever fell in love with? Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Opera. How, like, were you were a teenager <laughs> about when this, when yeah. this happened? Yeah, oh, sorry, I'm basic. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Good night, everybody. I feel like the first um, musical I loved was probably like Cats when I was a kid or something, so I don't know. I didn't, like, yeah, I didn't here. love Cats. Um, no. See, I guess, yeah, I just wasn't terribly interested in it. I was in a few, um, uh, oh, like yeah. in the orchestra. I was in Annie when I was in high school, which I'm mm. like still mad about because I like my my choir teacher was just a total, you know, word we're not allowed to say on this podcast. Um, <laughs> so being in Tennessee, there was basically no access. I saw Cats when I think I was 12 and I was honestly kind of disappointed by it because I, I, I didn't expect it to have no plot at all. I was like, OK, so these songs are going to make sense because I listened to the soundtrack album and I was like okay cool so finally these songs are gonna make sense in the context of a story and wow <laughs> this they did great narrative <laughs> no they did not but my mom also had this uh uh Andrew Lloyd Webber's greatest hits album that I listened to a lot. My villain origin story is I uh, went to went on this trip to uh, New York when I was uh, 16 with a Christian youth group called Young Life. Mm. Um, and I was not Christian, but I did want a free trip to New York. My soul did not get saved, but I did find the uh, Phantom of the Opera soundtrack, uh, original full or Broadway orchestral recording, which mm-hmm. you could not find in Tennessee at the time. So mm. uh, that was was where I really got into it and I got really obsessed with it and then I read the Phantom book and then I got really into Les Mis and then I got really into Cabaret and um, then I went to school in New York I think in no small part because I was so obsessed with Phantom <laughs> which kind of in turn made me like and for a hot minute I was like you know what I'm gonna do it I'm gonna major in musical theater 
Wow. Thank God I didn't, but. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. So you said you were in the orchestra in high school. So yeah, you would... I was a, I was a piano player. Nice. I had a sort of similar experience um, playing in the pit in high school and like, there was a version of me that could have been in the musicals, mm-hmm. uh, like with the actual theater kids. I was so adjacent to them. What did you play? I played saxophone in school, but was in the pit for uh, West Side Story, which mm-hmm. we did one year because that has two saxophone parts. I want to get even. Get cool. I want to bust. Bust cool. I want to go. Go cool. Boy, boy, crazy boy. But at the time it was... I remember just admiring it from afar and finding it so appealing, being like, I want to be on stage. Yeah. Like, I want to be a part of this. It was so romantic. So it's like the apex of karaoke, you know? It's like it's like the final form. And it's so kind of corny. Like, it was, I, I romanticized it so much, but I don't know that every kid would. And I mm-hmm. think there's, like, something innately adolescent about the appeal of mm-hmm. musicals, maybe? Or is there something adolescent, like, something that appeals to us when we're teenagers? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a reason why, like, you tend to get into it as a teenager if you're going to get into mm-hmm. it at all. Right. Uh, because I think, like, there is something inherently melodramatic about musicals as a form. Oh, yeah. Well, so, like, I guess there there is this sort of uh, axiom, if you will, about musical theater. And I don't, I, you know, I couldn't find who actually originated this, but it's like, it, you know, whenever the emotion is too big for dialogue, you sing. And when the emotion is too big for singing, you dance. And that's <laughs> sort of, like, why the form of musical as opposed to just a traditional dialogue-driven uh, play or film or whatever. Um, I think that, you know, that is just sort of the sort of thing, like, you are just open to it when you're younger, especially if you're, like, in this sort of, like, irony-saturated, like, sphere um, mm. the 90s were, or today, I think, is another reason why musicals are, like, becoming, like, super popular with teenagers. Like, Beetlejuice the Musical was huge on TikTok. Yeah. Like, TikTok saved Beetlejuice the Musical until it didn't. Well, <laughs> until yeah. the plague killed it. <laughs> hey, Mom. Dead Mom. I need a little help here. I'm probably talking to myself here. But Dead Mom, I gotta ask are you really in the ground? Cause I feel you all around me. Are you here, dead mom? Well, the TikTok musicals in general, like turning things into musicals on TikTok is a whole subgenre yeah, of yeah. type of TikTok, right? And so it's just like that to me feels like it's it's not just TikTok as a platform being good for this sort of thing. It's also like a refutation of irony and an embrace of sincerity. And because mm-hmm. that's the thing about musicals, it's like you, they resist insincerity. And I feel like that's a big part of uh, the appeal, you know. And I also think that it's kind of difficult to do uh, for a modern, modern audience. And I think that's a big reason why uh, a lot of people um, just don't get into it. Like they just can't really suspend their disbelief for like, why are people singing? I always I've, I feel like I've seen various points at which someone tries to make a cool musical in one way or another, mm-hmm. like whether it's a rock musical, like how Rent has a band on stage and yeah. they're playing electric guitars or even or Hamilton. Like it's like they're rapping and it's hip hop and that's mm-hmm. cool. But like, yeah, Hamilton, like when it first came out, like it was definitely cool. So I think I had like two years where it was like considered mm-hmm. cool and then it got too popular and then there was discourse mm-hmm. and now everything's ruined. After the war, I went back to New York. 
after the war I went back to New York I finished up my studies and I practiced law I practiced law, Burr work next door Right, I still love <laughs> Hamilton I mean, like, of course I, I made a whole episode about Satisfied Yeah, I am a little discourse saturated I hope I, I'll come back to it Because Yeah, I, I get I that I did watch it, like, 18 times After it went up on Disney Plus Right, oh, I've only watched it once I should watch it again So a thing you mentioned I really like that axiom about if you can't, if it's too big of a feeling for you to speak it, you sing it. And if it's too big to sing it, you dance it, mm-hmm. which that second step to dance, mm-hmm. that's kind of interesting and kind of gets at some of the accessibility stuff we were talking about. Yeah. So I grew up in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, so actually kind of near where you grew up, um, but it was a university town. So mm-hmm. there was a theater there and musicals would come through. And I actually remember seeing Cats after having listened to it a lot because I grew up listening to those original cast recordings. And uh, Cats was definitely one where I really liked the music just because I was a big music kid and was really into, you know, there's some hip counting in the Rum Tum Tugger and whatever. Yeah. And then I went and saw it and I did remember being like, oh, this is kind of weird. Like, And also going and seeing Jesus Christ Superstar, which I was super into mm-hmm. and being like, it was too much for me at the time because that's like a really heavy musical. Oh my god! Did you see? You didn't see the fiftieth uh, anniversary tour, did you? No, no, I haven't seen it. No, it was like I just saw it last year, um, and it oh, well. it slapped. It was like far and away the best version of Jesus Christ Superstar I had seen. Yeah, one still probably maybe my favorite musical of all time. Like it's between that and Fiddler. Oh, I'm so sorry you missed it. The that tour, the new tour they just did, it was like yeah. It, they I think they only got like twenty five percent through it before COVID. It was so good. No, oh, that's too bad. My mind is clear now. I hope they like that production was really good. Like the way they did, like, because the thing about Jesus Christ Superstar is it's like as written, it's so minimalist. So there's mm-hmm. so much the director can do with it. Cause like there is no definitive version of Jesus Christ Superstar like there is for something like Phantom uh, in mm-hmm. terms of like the staging and the costuming and the way things are played. Um, so every single version is like super, super different. And mm-hmm. so like that version, I was like, that was the first time I really liked Jesus Christ Superstar as like a whole work uh, mm-hmm. was when I saw the 50th anniversary tour. Uh, at the end of 2019. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, I wish I could see it. I liked the John Legend version on TV even. I mean, I yeah, like I hope I hope it, I hope they like revive that because it's like they had this entire tour that was supposed to go for 2 years. Oh man. And I think they only got like 5 6 months into oh, it. Yeah. Ready to close I bet it, it would have come here and I totally would have gone. Yeah, come on, bring it back. Bring it back. <laughs> So the experience of seeing those shows, like of seeing Cats, which is very dance centric to go back to this idea of like, first you talk, then you sing, then you dance Mm -hmm. Um, or Jesus Christ Superstar where the visuals, just like him being crucified at the end. I I have this like, it burned on my mind as like 13 year old me or whatever, seeing that and being like, whoa, (laughs) it was like the first time that legend even had seemed Mm -hmm. real to me, like seeing it Um, and how so many people I think just listen to musicals like I think Mm -hmm. that there really are so many people especially growing up around when we did like listening to the cast recording that then when you see them on stage it's such a dramatically different experience even though it's an it's really like essential to what a musical is, right? Yeah, is is exactly. the dance of it. Like there's such a gulf between the version that you listen to and the version that you see. It sounds like you listen to cast recordings as well. Yeah, I used to. I don't know. What did you make of that gulf? I, I guess that's the thing. Like now that I, you know, am 
privileged and have money, um, mm-hmm. I always go in blind. I don't ever listen to a cast recording oh, yeah. before I see a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, you know, when I was younger and I didn't have any money, it was totally different. Um, so I guess it really depended on the show. I think Phantom, uh, since it is a, it's a, basically an operetta, the entire cast, uh, the entire Broadway album is basically the show. Uh, you're not really missing any um, dialogue or you're, you're missing a little bit, but for the most part, the show is entirely there on the album. So whenever you see it on stage, It's just, um, I guess, kind of completing the image that was already there in your head for the most part. Mm -hmm. And the same with Hadestown, for that matter, uh, Mm. where it's like, you know, you'll be missing a lot of the staging. But if you listen to the show on the album, you get the gist because it's Mm -hmm. narrated. Um, But then you have other shows like Oklahoma, which are like half dialogue. Um, So you're hearing songs and you're like, okay, that's a cute little song, but I don't really know the context. Um, And yeah, so I think it really depends on the show. Right. I have these memories of doing this sort of filling in the blanks in my mind where sometimes the musical helps you with that and sometimes it just totally leaves gaps. I was recently, I just listened to In the Heights and then there's a miss, there's a couple of missing dialogue scenes from Mm. the original cast recording, which I just was like, I guess I know what happened because I can figure out by the way that people are now reacting as though an event happened that wasn't included in this even though that musical feels like it's like 90% in the soundtrack it's 90% sung through but there's a little bit that isn't here's to getting fired killing the moon without so much as a thank you five long years cheers to finally getting Vanessa to fix your collar holla to doing shots on a weekend as long as you buy them lachaim And then in the Phantom London cast recording, which is actually the one that I listen to the most, they'll actually do the blocking in the pan of the mix. There's a scene, it's near the uh, end of the first act, where the Phantom is like, I think on the roof, and he's watching the two of them go go off together. And then it kind of pans across from right to left, and it's like they're moving on the stage. time listening to that and kind of picturing it in my head and and I and trying to figure out like what is like I basically got the plot but there are definitely a lot of parts in Phantom because it has this kind of arcane story that it's based on where they're like narrating about the Punjab lasso and stuff yeah. and I was like I don't know what's going on here like it's, and then when I finally did see it on you. stage your podcast is premised on the idea that you and your co-host Kavi mm-hmm. he does not like musicals so he's not just not an entirely like a non-musical person he's kind of a hater like yeah. he like really does not like musicals he's a he's a 
good-natured hater. I guess yes, that is like yes. his shtick is, uh, he, you know, he's constantly bewildered and, you know, bitter old man. Uh- mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you find that dynamic? I find that's a, it's a common dynamic for shows to have like an expert and uh-huh. a newcomer, you know, like Game of Thrones shows or whatever, where one person knows the books. Yeah, and- but it's like the expert and the hater. Uh- it's, a, it's a more extreme version of that dynamic that he like actively dislikes yeah. most of the musicals you introduce. Well, I think to. it's sort of a common dynamic. Like it all kind of started because mm. his girlfriend is kind of like me in that she's a huge fan and mm. you know he is very unapologetic about the fact that he just doesn't understand the appeal of musicals so i think the thing about this in particular is it's a kind of a really common divide people tend yes. to have strong feelings about musicals rather than like it just being like oh i don't really know about i don't know video games and so like the mm-hmm. newcomer is explained video games by the video game expert you know i think because right. i think that's sort of the funny thing about musicals is for whatever reason it just brings out such extreme opinions yeah what do you think the reason is like why is it so extreme I think like I know in Kaveh's case it's sort of just a bewilderment I don't he does like he just like I don't understand the appeal of this and that frustrates me mm-hmm. um uh and it's kind of funny especially for him because he is like you know a musician like you know not, not a professional musician but like you know yeah. he knows music uh right. and so I think I think like our dynamic works because um you know I think it would be a really frustrating listen if you know, the hater didn't come in with an open mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, you know, his personality is that he he's very good at like not making his disdain feel judgmental. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think uh, th- that's kind of what makes it accessible. Yeah. Keeping it kind of I statements. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think that was that just like this idea that this is sort of like a, a surprisingly common dynamic, I guess, especially mm-hmm. in like hetero relationships where like the woman loves musicals and the man's like, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I guess we were trying to capture that. <laughs> there is something there. There is a like some relationship between dislike of musicals and masculinity that's probably yeah. more complicated than I could even begin to. Plumb, yeah, it's, it's not not there. Right. It's not, not there. It's it's not something I totally have my head around, but it is it does sort of exist. Well, I think there is definitely like, you know, m- musicals as a genre, even though they're all written by men like Hades Town was mm-hmm. only like the second one in however many years that yeah. like was uh, like like where the the all three music lyrics and books. Uh, I think it was like the mm-hmm. second time ever that a woman won that. Um, mm-hmm. So by it's funny because like the industry itself is dominated by men's, but the fan base is predominantly female. Yeah, that is interesting. So uh, you know, it's it's you, you can't really divorce that connotation too much, right? And I mean, Anais is like from the world of folk music too. Like she's not yeah. like a Broadway mainstay too. So yeah, exactly. She was kind of an outsider. Huh? That I had never really thought about that dynamic, but that's yeah. true. Um, I want to talk more about Hades Town because you were thank you very much a guest on mm-hmm. on Strong Songs to explain your. Uh, your what it's like seeing the show and i think that that like i think that the difference between listening and seeing is very interesting at least for me as a musician because i've always come to the music first mm-hmm. um i listened to a lot of them like i said to the cast recordings and it wasn't until going and really seeing more and more musicals that it it just it sunk in for me how the raw spectacle of a broadway musical is such a part of its power like that's one of the reasons that phantom is like the longest running musical ever is just that there's a chandelier that like does amazing things and it's so cool to see it and every show kind of harnesses that energy in a different way but there's always a moment with any you know long-running musical where you're looking at the stage and there's like whatever 20 people on there and all of these sets and all these people working together at the same time to make this thing happen it's like 
only the circus comes yeah, close, yeah. like Cirque du Soleil, like Cirque du Soleil. Maybe is on the same level of like, and those 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 guys aren't singing, so <laughs> right. And everyone in a musical is also singing perfectly yeah. and, and, and playing and, instruments. Like you mm-hmm. have to, like Hades Town is wild because right. you have to be like an octuple threat. Uh, yeah, because man. Like the three fates and Orpheus all play instruments on stage. What do the fates play on stage? Um, they play accordion, violin, and uh, I think tambourine. When your body aches to lay it down, when you're hungry and there ain't enough to go around, ain't no leg to which a girl won't go. Anyway, the wind blows. Oh man! So they're playing the the backing music yeah. for those their sections when they come out. So yeah, the, like whenever the fates are on stage and. Uh, you can hear an accordion while they're singing that mm-hmm. probably is also uh, one of them is actually playing it. Same with the violin. Nice. That's very cool. Yeah. I remember seeing Rent as a high schooler back when, you know, it was possible to see Rent and think it was amazing before <laughs> it, would, it had been ruined kind mm-hmm. of by, by time and the ravages of time. <laughs> I mean, some people still like Rent. Yeah, a, a yeah. lot of people still like, like it's Rent. It's got some good songs. It's got some catchy tunes. Um, so, um, anyways, th- there's a moment in Rent where he he like plays guitar on stage, right? When he's working on his song, and I remember at the time being like, "He's really playing. That's pretty cool." Well, that's another thing that Cave had noticed um, was that so many of these musicals are about like one guy writing like one song or one show um and like the at the end of the show it's like you know we have to perform our one song and that's the culmination mm-hmm. of the thing like rent does mm-hmm. that moulin rouge does that phantom mm-hmm. does that hades town does that um mm-hmm. it's just like it, yeah it's like one guy's gonna save the world with his song that's what i'm working on a song to fix what's wrong take what's broken make it whole a song so beautiful It brings the world back into tune Back into time And all the flowers will bloom When you become my wife Oh, he's crazy Right, and then of course it, it builds the song up And it needs to be really good It's like the problem that Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip had Not mm-hmm. to completely left turn but that that the show within a show was not funny and they uh-huh. would always be talking about how oh that brought the house down and you'd see them do it and it wouldn't be that good like if yeah. you're gonna make art within there's art there's a reason yeah 30 rock clobbered that, <laughs> 30 clobbered and, that and show that the point of 30 rock was that their show was terrible also yeah. so like every time tracy jordan show is on or something like doing a skit it's like bad yeah. where in a musical if you're gonna have the song like yeah. it's a great trick to be like well we need to like put on the greatest show ever and write the greatest song of all time. If the song is good, it's exciting. It makes people excited for a good song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it needs to be good. I'd say the song in Hadestown qualifies. I think it does because I think, no, I think it totally does and I think it's like built up like beautifully because that Mm -hmm. motif is there throughout the entire show.
not finished though. You've been hearing bits of it throughout right. the entire show. So by the time we get to the end and you have his big song, like not only does it feel a little bit familiar, it also feels complete in a way that it didn't mm-hmm. before. And Phantom kind of does that, but in a way that like it's not supposed to be good. It's supposed to be seductive. Mm-hmm. So like whenever we get to point of no return um and like that's the song that the phantom wrote that he's tricked everybody into playing um we're mm-hmm. not supposed to be like impressed by his genius so much as like swayed by the tension of the moment like oh no what's right. he going to do is he going to kill her on stage is he going to kill you know right, right. and so like the goodness of the song is almost beside the point in that context although i think point of no return is a really good song It's funny, you know, there's a good comparison between Your Eyes, which is the song from Rent. I'll probably mm-hmm. play an example here. Yeah. And um, Why do you have to <laughs> slip away? Well, so Sorry. that's the thing is that <laughs> the cool thing about Town and about Epic, which is the song that Orpheus is working mm-hmm. on to like mm-hmm. fix the seasons and bring the world back together. But just like you said, he's working on it throughout the entire musical. And a big mm-hmm. part of the musical yeah. is the process. And you see the song develop so much that when he performs it, it, it really comes together. In Rent, he's working on a song as well, and it's mostly just he's playing that little guitar well, thing. Well, he spends the whole... He's always plucking that little thing from La Boheme. Like, <laughs> I forget what it's called. Right, he's at yeah. his waltz. And it's... The melody does turn up in your eyes, and it's during the climactic moment, which is cool. I remember when that played, I thought that was cool. But the song itself, your eyes... Like, it's it's just kind of a totally separate thing that comes out of nowhere in the context of the musical. And I don't think that it's quite as impactful because of that. So, I guess... I guess what I'm saying is that my takeaway here is that they need to show the process of songwriting. Right, more. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I'm speaking from experience, it is in absolute fairness. I know because I, I feel like Rent, the final version of Rent, would not have been the final version. I think that it is honestly kind of incomplete mm. because Jonathan Larson died too soon. Right. Um, so I feel like if it had, if he had survived, we probably would have gotten a more complete version. Although I don't think your eyes would have been better. Um, mm-hmm. But like speaking from experience, doing that sort of thing is really, really hard. Like, Sure. Like, you know, because I'm sort of in this process right now without getting too into it. It's like I in my second book, like I have like one of the main characters is like, a you know, a, a Pulitzer Prize nominated like essayist. Oh, <laughs> and uh, there's uh-huh. a major plot point where it's just like my one big essay. And uh-huh. like so I had, you know, I'm put in this position where I have to write a thing that could believably have been written by like a Pulitzer Prize nominated uh, reporter for the New Yorker. (laughs) Why have you done this to yourself, Lindsay? (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, it's like it went through so many hands, like, you know, professionals Uh like, you know, we have to make this sound right, look right, you know, feel like Ronan Farrow wrote it. Uh, So like speaking from experience, I like it is really hard to do that when you Mm -hmm. build your like show around like, okay, this really talented person has to do the one big thing. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, so I have some sympathy for it, but I think Ren really does not do it very well. Yeah, it just doesn't really land. And I I mean, I thought that was a very impactful moment when I was 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. But looking back on it now and comparing it to something like Hadestown, um, I think it's a, it's it's an interesting difference. So you described on the show the sort of way that Hadestown works on stage. 
that kind of production, it's partly tied to the theater that it's in that they're able to do it. It's kind of a small production, right? Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about just like how the stage works? It's like a, this layer yeah. cake thing and like how the theater plays into that. Um, so basically it's like, two donuts inside of each other and a circle in the middle is the stage and they all spin. Um, So you have like basically three layers of spinning. This is a technique that was popularized by uh, Les Miserables in Mm -hmm. the 80s was when you started seeing spinning stages and now almost every uh, show has some variation Mm -hmm. on it. Hamilton uh, famously. Yeah, Hamilton famously did too. Like I guess Hamilton brought it to the living room. Uh, Mm -hmm. Right, everyone's seen that or anyone with Disney Plus. Yeah, so Hadestown does something similar but um, where Hamilton just has the one circle, Hadestown has three. And so uh, the way they... Uh, they use this kind of cleverly since so much of it has to do with walking, um, Orpheus walking into the underworld, mm-hmm. um, or like, you know, trying to impart distance just by like having it spin or, you know, almost it almost is like sort of a way to like mimic the effect of montage on stage where people are like standing still and moving around in different uh, spaces in time. And, you know, someone will have their line and, you know, it almost kind of feels like a montage. So, it's, uh, you know, you, you could see the exact same musical number uh, cut up like a montage, uh, but the way mm-hmm. you like basically the staging is like really brilliantly um, uh, uses, uses the, uh, the rotators and uh, basically to mimic that effect. And, mm. you know, it starts off really simple. Like, so for, the stage doesn't spin at all at first and then it starts spinning a little. And then by the middle of the first act, you've got all three um, circles going and they mm. basically don't start, don't stop for the rest of the show, especially at the end when um, uh, Orpheus sings Epic three, which is the song right. he sings to Hades, the one big song, you know, right, and then, right. and then we have to leave the underworld, um, you know, basically like they're standing still on the stage while the circle is going. So he's walking and it almost kind of, you know, it gives the illusion of like making distance, even though he's standing in, he's in mm-hmm. the exact same spot. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's expending effort. He's just yeah, not actually like, moving. Yeah, he's, so. he's, yeah, he's like walking on a, on a record player. Right. So the blocking can kind of stay the same, even though yeah, exactly. he can appear to be moving. Yeah. And that's how they evoke the effect of walking around in the underworld. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it, I sometimes wonder who's responsible for these parts of the musical. Rachel Chavkin, that's her name, right? Who directed mm-hmm. Hades yeah. Town. Yeah. And then Anais Mitchell wrote the music, wrote right. the book, and that when it was a whole concept album coming in. Yeah, yeah. So that seems like a kind of a common pipeline, like the concept album to Broadway thing. Like, yeah, sometimes. Like uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, I guess, was the um, biggest modern example of that. Right. Yeah, and it, it seems like you could I could see someone writing these songs one way and then the concept album for Hades Town is is very different than the musical. Like it's similar in some ways, but yeah. it's missing a lot. They added a lot of music to it and a lot of I'm, story. Yeah, I'm also surprised at how much of the concept album made it in, you mm. know, because I, I feel like they could have changed a lot and they didn't. Um, mm-hmm. Where it's just like basically everything that's in the final Hades Town uh, uh, is just added from the concept album. And right. so like they just took the concept album and padded it. Or, I mean, padding is like, I, I think it, I think it's improved. Like, don't get me right. wrong. That I don't feel like it's, they, yeah, they I don't, feel, it I don't feel like they fluffed it for no reason. No, yeah. uh, because like some of my favorite things, uh, like uh, the chant, which is uh, what we mm-hmm. hear when we first go into the underworld with amazing, Hades and Persephone. Amazing sequence in the music land. Oh, keep your head, keep your head low. Oh, you gotta keep your head low. Oh, you gotta keep your head low. Keep your head, keep your head low. Oh, you gotta keep your head low. If you wanna keep your head, oh, you gotta keep your head. 
in the coldest time of year. Was not, yeah, not in the concept album. So, um, like, that's one of my favorite ones. And uh, uh, so I, I, you know, they added a lot. And I think especially, like, for Persephone, uh, giving her more of a, you know, presence and uh, character arc. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who do you think is more responsible for that? I know a couple of people, Todd Sikafus, who produced the main album, was involved with the reorchestrations, Mm -hmm. which is like, that's kind of arranging the music. But the Rearranging the story, I mean, I'm sure a lot of that was Anais, but do you think that that yeah. was kind of collaborative? Or I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it was collaborative because like, even if you watch the off-Broadway version, mm-hmm. there's actually a surprising bit that changed. Because the thing about musicals is um, th- once they're staged, you can't really change them much. Uh, mm. The Beetlejuice musical is one of kind of like this weird exception because it changed a lot between like the test run in D.C., um, and the Broadway run six months later. Because uh, the test run in D.C. was like a disaster. Oh, um, interesting. And so apparently they like cut three songs, added one more, and uh, or added uh, and t- basically tried to make it more tonally cohesive. Uh, personally, I thought it worked. I, I think the Beetlejuice hmm. musical is great. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about that pipeline because I think that that's interesting and not a thing that's commonly understood. How does that work? Just sort of broadly, I know that there are Sometimes there are the test showings. There's mm-hmm. off Broadway. It all feels like kind of like the uh, what is it in baseball? The like the farm league where yeah. you work your way up to the majors, you know, or like being in beta, kind of like the software is in beta, and then it gets. It really depends because like yeah. we're in this weird uh, realm now where. Um, the money tends to go into these productions that are basically funded by like film productions or the Broadway arm of film companies like Warner mm-hmm. Brothers. Yeah, or like Frozen, like Disney makes yeah. a Frozen Disney movie. has the entire, like Disney owns like half of Broadway right now. Sure. Um, surprise, surprise. Yeah, so it's like those things will be like commissioned and workshopped. Like the Disney ones, I think, like I, I, I don't know. It's like I'm really not a fan of Disney on Broadway. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think it's just like it's cheating. It's cheap. I don't like it. Like the only thing that's really kind of worthwhile about it is the actors might bring something new to the table and the staging right. might be pretty cool. But other than that, I'm like, this just does not need to exist and this is boring and I don't like it. Um, and then you have something like, but I guess the sort of also equally common thing is like, we're going to make a, either a jukebox musical based off of like a, like the John like Lennon musical Billy or American Joel Idiot or, or yeah, 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 Alanis Morissette. Those are also super common. Or mm-hmm. the musical based on a movie like uh, Mean Girls, which was really popular. Mm-hmm. Um, Legally Blonde, the musical. Uh, I mean, Beetlejuice for that Beetlejuice, matter. Beetlejuice, yeah. Counts, right? And Beetlejuice, yeah. Beetlejuice is one of those that was like um, a much higher budget, uh, which was also kind of a big thing that was working against it. It was because like it. Uh, needed to run for a certain amount of time in order to like earn its investment back mm. and it was through this like weird fluke of um, uh, like the reason it got cancelled ori- originally was like if the box office receipts go below a certain amount uh, by this one week in May uh, we're pulling the contract and oh, we're geez. giving it to Scott Rudin in order to make the music man no one's getting it now <laughs> <laughs> but um so uh, so it did go below that, uh, but that was before the Tonys. So mm. uh, it went below that certain amount. And so uh, the people who are in the theater are like, fine, Scott Rudin's getting it. Beetlejuice is out uh, as of June of the following year. And so um, uh, they didn't announce it until December of that year. But like then the Tonys happens and then uh, 
suddenly it's getting all of this attention that it hadn't gotten before Beetlejuice they had a they had a big performance at the Tonys and they opened the Tonys um and so because it got like again Beetlejuice is one of these shows that has a really big appeal to like teenagers uh Mm -hmm. because the show itself is basically like it's this extremely rare show that is like focuses on the validity of like teenage feelings and in particular Mm -hmm. teenage grief in a way that like the movie sure does not Mm -hmm. um and uh so after that happened like it started getting steam on tiktok uh people you know then it started um selling out and so then by november it was actually setting records for the winter garden because uh it had Mm. like started picking up because people had seen it yeah because people had seen it like on um the tonys and then they saw it again at the macy's thanksgiving day parade right and so like there was like this sort of like you know weird underdog story of a show that still had like all this money like pumped into it it was announced in december that it was going to close in june but it had already been such a success that it was like okay well we make we might be able to save it if we can find a new theater for it because this is so in demand it's selling out every night mm-hmm. and then the plague happened and that's the end of that <laughs> so they maybe they maybe could have found another theater yeah there's so much like it's it's wild that there's this whole economy built up around like having you know a lot of people come to your show and yet there isn't a as much of a built-in promotional machine for like getting the show in front of people like you just described like on tv so they, they can see it i mean they have no idea what they're doing like yeah, it seems kind of seems that way they're like it's weird they're making these shows that they know like because like beetlejuice and matilda and stuff like that like they know these shows are going to appeal to young audience that's why they yeah. make them but they don't know how to like market them it's like it, it, it's so frustrating because like especially a show like beetlejuice which is like there's no reason that show should have failed you know no. like that <laughs> like the audience was there they just didn't know how to market it right it's all very tied i guess it must be partly related to the fact that it's so tied up in physical locations and mm-hmm. that's just like the history well, of it sort of but like you know again like all of these kids that like live in the greater new york area were the people who was who like would have saved the show if covid mm-hmm. hadn't happened like you know and also just like word of mouth that's how these shows stay afloat people go to new york you know uh just as tourists they go for trips and that's when they mm-hmm. see shows and like i knew people that like had tickets to see beetlejuice because i was talking it up for like the week after the broadway closed you know mm-hmm. just you know because like oh oh i live like a couple states away or oh i'm going to go visit a friend in new york um and that's how these shows stay afloat like a full like more than half of the people who see broadway shows are tourists right, um of course and so uh like the, you know there's absolutely no reason for a lot of these shows to fail like some of them deserve to fail don't get me wrong um, right. um <laughs> like, so let's talk about andrew lloyd Weber, because uh, I know that you have Lord <laughs> you have Andy. a lot of thoughts about him. Um, I've mm-hmm. I've watched a lot of your videos about him, though there is quite a bit. There's <laughs> quite a bit of Lindsay Ellis like, content. So I've noticed a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber on your show. Um, <laughs> do you have something you want to tell us? Um, so yeah, what what is it about him? Let's. I just want to like what defines an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical to you? I feel like. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber is to musical theater as Michael Bay is to action movies. Oh man, okay. You know, okay. I I think it it people are really down on him because musical theater people tend to be uh, you know, more affluent and, you know, mm-hmm. have a a way overinflated uh, attitude about themselves and their taste. Yeah, so a lot of people really don't like Andrew Lloyd Webber because they see him as having brought the entire genre down and made it more hmm. base. Because big thing about Phantom of the Opera, especially now, like last time I saw it, um, a, 
uh, most of the audience was uh, not English speaking. Like they right. were mostly foreign tourists. So um, Phantom is one of those shows that you don't even know how to speak English in order and, to watch it and get and there the you gist. Are, yeah. You know, it's sort of like a Bollywood movie in that way. It's just like, mm-hmm. you know, there are these, there are certain stories that are just like so melodramatic and the emotions are so obvious that you don't need to understand what's uh you know being said in order to understand the story what's well, sort of like opera actually like yeah exactly you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's exactly how opera is so um I, and so I, it's, at the same time it's like i i respect how unapologetic he is in trying to like it was always his goal to make musical theater mainstream especially british musical theater because when he came on this on the scene british musical theater was a joke you know because mm-hmm. the biggies were rogers and hammerstein and stephen sondheim was on the ups um mm-hmm. this is like in the 60s 50s and 60s and um so there really wasn't much of a uh, british musical theater scene and he didn't want to just make it a scene he wanted to make it like you know popular and cool and the british just were not having it um so like mm-hmm. uh his first show which was really more of a cantata it was more again a concept album was uh, joseph and the amazing technical right. dream coat kind of the precursor to jesus christ Superstar. yeah and it very much is a test run for jesus christ yeah, superstar yeah. Very similar. and it didn't like the people in england were just not really interested and so they brought it over to the u.s and had a lot more success and because of the success in the u.s that kind of gave them the uh clout they needed to make the um concept album that was jesus christ superstar and by Mm -hmm. them i mean uh, andrew lloyd weber and tim rice who was his uh, partner at the time um they have since had a terrible falling out (laughs) Mm -hmm. i've heard about that which is too bad yeah nobody uh, nobody knows why it's just like some good work together so it's both of them both of them are like he knows what he did (laughs) 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 to this day uh that's too bad yeah i I hope they make up before they die it would be sad if those those two bros never bro again yeah jesus christ superstar again like they kept trying to pitch it in the West End and, you know, the English just were not having it. And so they bring it over to the U.S. And it's not just like the highest selling concept album. I think it was like the highest selling album of that year. 1970 oh, wow. is one or two. Um, and so uh, that the concept album doing that well was where they were able to like launch that onto Broadway. Now, the thing about Jesus Christ Superstar is it, according to Lord Andy, um, he, he was not a fan of that production. He was oh, really, really, really unhappy with the first Broadway version mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, what he seemed really unhappy with was just like, you know, the staging and like, right. you know, it was like really stilted and like just basically like the directing and like everybody cringed at it. It only ran for like six months. Um, mm, they just like kind of didn't crack it. It sounds like the first time yeah. they did it. And then there was like around the same time they did a production in L.A. that he considered like the much superior version. And so, like, mm. but that's another, yeah. So, Jesus Christ Superstar is again like this show with no uh, definitive version. So, from there, he makes a million other musicals. And mm-hmm. soon, like, Phantom is what, 11 years later, 86? So, it's like, yeah. So, that was about 15 then. years later. Um, oh, 15 years later. Okay. Yeah. Cause, like, basically, after that, he did Evita with um, yeah. Tim Rice. And mm-hmm. then after that, it was like, I mean, there were, there were some little ones in there, but like after that, it was Cats. And right. that's where the great schism, the great Lloyd Webber Rice schism happened. Mm. And again, nobody, it's like someone cheated on someone's, I don't know. Like, we right, don't know right, what right. happened. But anyway, around this time also, he, uh, 
um oh what was he oh it was it was cats like he while he was making cats he meets and falls in love with sarah brightman uh leaves his wife for sarah brightman a decision he mm. would go on to regret horribly uh, mm. <laughs> and basically writes phantom of the opera for his uh very young i mean she wasn't that young she was like 12 or 13 years younger than him which right. you know i know it sounds like a lot but she was like 22 she's an adult whatever um and so like you know he was like obsessed with her so he was the phantom to her christine and he wrote this show for her and it's kind of funny in hindsight because she's not a great christine like she can she can't really hit the note she can't really like um you know and also because she just wasn't that well trained yet it's like, a tough role i mean christine is not messing around yeah and she became a much better opera singer later in life so mm-hmm. i think she's a much better singer now um, mm. than she was when she was in her early 20s because she just hadn't had that much training yet. Um, but yeah, and that's that's kind of how Phantom of the Opera came to pass. And I guess like in that context, Love Never Dies is an interesting addendum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which of course there's... is the sequel for those of you playing the home game. I think there's something interesting in in Phantom's longevity. I liked the episode that you when uh, that you guys made about this musical, both in talking about how it's been on Broadway for so long, for however long it is now, since was it eighty nine? That it's it almost yeah, it's almost thirty years. It's unbelievable. No, so it's, it's it's worth it thirty years. More yeah. than thirty years, yeah, like almost thirty two years. Um, and just it's just at this point where it's just running on its own inertia, yeah. And you're only like you're hoping that maybe you'll get somebody playing the Phantom, like an understudy or someone who's going to wind up being. Well, great. I think they might because uh, there was in in the Phantom with a PH. Um, mm-hmm. There was this casting call uh, that went up on Instagram for the new Broadway Christine, and like it's the first time they specifically were soliciting people of color to play Christine. Right. And so right. we were like, oh, maybe there's hope. <laughs> maybe you know, maybe right. there, maybe some some like fresh blood and like you know maybe they'd like please god like restage it you've had 18 months to like screw with the theater so it looks right. like phantom is definitely reopening um i hope with a new cast <laughs> like you joke that phantom will continue to run for like the rest of time but it just it does seem like there is a half-life for a musical that past a certain point mm-hmm. it just loses some kind of like steam that it had well yes yes and no i think i think yes and no i think uh as as I learned from the new Oklahoma, which I mm. thought was great, like I'd never liked Oklahoma before until I saw. What's the just briefly? What's the difference between the new Oklahoma and the original one? The staging. Um, okay. And uh, it's kind of like the staging and the performances, and it's honestly kind of amazing how just by changing the tone in which a line is delivered, or the blocking of a scene. Or just by highlighting this thing and not that thing can completely change the meaning of the show. Mm. And um, you know how Oklahoma ends, right? Uh, yeah, but you can tell listeners. Right. So Judd Fry, who is sort of the antagonist, um, shows up at the wedding of the two leads, sort of, Curly and Lori. Um and uh, he shows up with a gun. Like, I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow or other, Curly gets him first. And so, like, in the original 1940s version, uh, what happens is Curly shoots Judd dead. And everyone in the room is like, well, I didn't see anything. Did you, U.S. Marshal? Nope. <laughs> and it's played as a joke. And right. so then they sing the final song which is of course Oklahoma and it's sort of like they're like dancing around this corpse like <laughs> where 
Um, it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's kind of weird. And so, like, the new version does that, but, like, stages it in a way that, like, really highlights the horror of the thing that's going on, which mm. is basically, like, a man just got killed and everyone in the room is agreeing to be corrupt because mm. the man that killed him was, like, well-liked and wealthy. And the... um and so, like, they, when they do the final Oklahoma, they're all doing it with this really deadpan expression, and Curly is literally covered in blood. And it's, like, you know, it, it, it's, it felt, like, kind of really timely, even, because, like, we're having all these discussions sure, about sure. police brutality. And mm-hmm. um, that really illustrated to me the power of staging and Mm -hmm. so when i look at phantom i'm like yes that show absolutely could run to the end of time but you know they need to find a new way to frame it and it's honestly like there's so much they could do with it and i don't think they need to change it like a whole whole lot but like just changing the setting or just changing like the curtains Mm -hmm. like no come on like you can do better than that um what is it that so what do you think that makes it possible for oklahoma to be reimagined in that way that is keeping phantom from being reimagined that way like why is phantom so stuck in glass well i think it's because like the brand is so stuck in glass like Mm. that's sort of the trouble with having a definitive production and that's sort of like the wonderful thing about jesus christ superstar is every single version of jesus christ superstar that you have ever seen is completely different like they're all like they all have different aesthetics like there's Mm. one um you can find on like youtube that stars tim minchin as judas uh Mm -hmm. have you seen that one no, I've seen a f- maybe I've seen that one. I've seen a few. There's one with like the guy, the lead singer of Living Color, like played Judas and totally ruled. There's been a, yeah, I don't know if I've seen that. Yeah, one. you should see the Tim Minchin one. I think it's pretty okay. good, because um, it's got like this sort of Banksy aesthetic. It's I mean like it's okay. a little silly, but like you well, know, you know. Uh, and, like the John Legend version, uh, sure. the, like and the movie, the movie is yeah, just, the like, movie. weird desert acid trip like. And, and so the, something like Jesus Christ Superstar, there since there is no definitive version and there is no brand surrounding it, there's no like logo yeah. that everyone's seen, like mm-hmm. there is a lot more creative freedom. But the problem with Phantom is just like the brand is so baked in, people get pissy when you change things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it like it ends up feeling really stale when it doesn't need to, because I genuinely do feel like the story itself is kind of timeless. That's why it's stuck around. But like right. same with any any Beauty and the Beast retelling, you kind of need to like, I'm not saying do what Disney did and like have a whole <laughs> like, you know, tangent about Stockholm Syndrome. Right, but like, right, right. you know, the, there there are ways to make this same story feel fresh. And it is kind of I, like I, I doubt we will see much new. Yeah, that's interesting that it's kind of a victim of its own yeah. cultural footprint. That yep. like that <laughs> footprint is just so deep that it's just stuck in it and it can't climb out. When, victim of its own branding. <laughs> right. Like it's, it's almost like if you if you wrote a musical to just be a little bit looser to begin with. I mm-hmm. remember people talking talking about Hamilton there would be these articles with the prop designers about how like they're so meticulous about the length of the ropes mm-hmm. on set and they and it was really impressive and reading it and be like that's impressive but that is also kind of carving yourself into this one specific way of doing a show yeah when you know if you didn't do that you could actually open the open the door for the show to be more yeah. flexible in the long term too successful for your own good. I do. I mean, yeah, there aren't any other musicals that I think of as synonymous with like set pieces the way that I think of Phantom as being synonymous with like the pyrotechnics. I remember it was like mm-hmm. seeing it as a kid and being like, they're lighting stuff on fire on stage. And there's this chandelier, of course. And yeah, and those things are just associated with the show to the point where it. I guess it doesn't surprise me that people if people went to a production where it was like 
whatever the the Phantom well, of the Mall. Yeah, the fa- <laughs> you, well, there was a, like <laughs> there was actually like a couple years ago there was a production in uh, Athens, Greece, um, that did seem to be kind of experimenting because they had like completely different outfits and completely different sets. Oh wow, cool! And like actually, you know, rather than the kind of shadow boxy thing that they do on Broadway, it actually kind of used like stone like stairs and like it actually kind of looked more like a basement and like it, it looked really different from the West End and Broadway productions and like we were all like hey should we pull our money and go to Greece but then it yeah, closed geez. like it didn't run for very long because I was honestly yeah. like if it had run for longer I, I might have been like you know what this is for work you know we should, right, right, <laughs> we, sure. we got we got to see Grease Phantom because it was I mean, in English the perks too of, yeah, yeah the perks of talking about musicals for a living I mean that was I'm not gonna lie part of the reason why I started the podcast was like finally I can <laughs> <laughs> I can like write all this off. I can, I can <laughs> rationalize all this money I'm spending. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, listening to the show makes me want to go to see uh, to see musicals more. And actually, like I just listened to the Phantom one, and it was just a little over a year ago. Mm-hmm. And the three of you, I guess, on that show were in New York going to musicals, and it just makes me very nostalgic for the oh times when God. that was possible. Yeah, it was funny because like even a couple episodes ago, uh, yeah. uh, I forget who we had as a guest, but like uh, Kave was talking about how like. I, like I genuinely can't oh, wait until Broadway opens again and we can go to the theater. <laughs> right, and I can go and I can go yeah. dislike a musical. Yeah, just IRL. like I can't wait to go dislike musicals with other people and be in a theater with other people. I'm just like I'm yeah. sorry, I'm sorry. Yep, yep. No, it's just thinking about it makes me feel excited and sort of apprehensive at the same time. Um, well, this has been super fun. I always ask people for three albums at the end, and uh, yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the same for you. So, Lindsay, what are what are three things that uh, you've been listening to or that you recommend people check out? I'm going to recommend uh, Cabaret, the original Broadway cast from 1998, starring Alan Cumming. And, okay. Oh uh, man, I've never heard that one. It's with Alan Cumming too. He's so good. Welcome, bienvenue. Welcome. Fremda, étranger, stranger. Glücklich zu sehen, je suis enchanté. Happy to see you. Bleib, rest, stay. Alan Cumming is my favorite MC, like maybe my favorite Broadway performance of all time, period. Like that is like... Ellen at his coming nest. It is mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it is good content. He rules. And to anybody who who doesn't know him, his he was like Nightcrawler. Yeah, he was X-Men Nightcrawler. Like, he was Fag and Floop and Spy Kids. That's he right. He was yep. uh, the Russian dude in Goldeneye. He's like basically mm-hmm. in every '90s and 2000s movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in Titus, the Julie Tamar movie. Yeah, yeah. Very, and also, yeah, a wonderful singer and yeah, in, uh, stage he's, yeah, very eclectic actor. I also saw him in the Three Penny Opera, which is another performance that nobody remembers, oh, nice. starring uh, written. By Wallace Shawn and starring uh, Anna oh, Gasteyer and Cindy Lauper. And, and, oh, yeah, I've never even heard of this. That yeah, sounds incredible. Yeah, it was because like nobody saw it. So like when I, that was back when I had energy and I was in college wow. and we would like yeah. stay at the stage door. This is my Cindy Lauper story. I'll keep it short. Okay. Um, so it was like Nellie McKay's birthday. She's a singer. She was playing as part there, and Cindy Lauper comes out and we were like, "Hey, we want to we want to wish Nellie a happy birthday." And she was like, oh, my God, that's so sweet. Now, and she, like, runs back inside, comes out with a bottle of champagne, and, like, starts pouring us champagne at the oh, stage man. door. And that rules. I was like, Cindy Lauper has a place in my heart forever. <laughs> yeah, this is she, happening. Yeah, so, like, yeah, Cindy Lauper is exactly as cool as you, as you think she oh, is. Oh, that rules. Um, I want to talk about one of her songs one of these days. Yeah, so Cabaret uh, is one of those shows. Yeah, I, 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 like, it's not 
scheduled to tour anytime soon. But it's mm-hmm. one of those like, God, I wish they would because it's like it's a show that takes place in like 1930s Germany right before the Nazis come to power. And um and it really is like upsetting to me that there's no production like in the in the works for that because I'm just like, oh, it's so relevant right now. Oh, and man. like well, it it just oh it makes me sad. Uh, the uh, nice. number number two is uh, the O Brother or Art Thou soundtrack. <laughs> so good. It's like I know everyone's listened to it, but if you haven't, there's a reason why everybody's listened to it. Go do it. In constant sorrow, all through his days, I am a man of constant sorrow. I've seen trouble all my. actually did just do an episode about it uh and sort of the question of is it a musical Mm -hmm. and i staked my you know claim in the sand yes and what makes it a musical said no um well basically (laughs) because it has every single qualifier that you consider uh Mm -hmm. you know even even some things that aren't like does it need to be diegetic well there's plenty of uh non-diegetic musical numbers um there are plenty there are several numbers where the plot just stops because characters are singing like the siren song there's a song and dance number with the clan where they're singing i gotta see that movie it's been a while uh, my my other argument is like some of them do actually uh propel the plot forward some of them are relevant to like the thing that is being Mm, done um plot often stops because we're singing and the entire <laughs> plot hinges around music. So yeah, that that's my rationale. I think that works. I think that works. And regardless, it's a very good soundtrack. All right, so mm-hmm. that's your second pick. What is pick number three? Uh, the Weeknd's new album. Because that's the like, because like I was you you asked me for three albums. I'm like, oh man, I don't listen to albums anymore unless it's a musical. Uh, yeah, yeah. But like the the one exception is the weekend's new album. He was robbed. He's right. The Grammys are garbage. The Grammys are definitely weird. Um, yeah, I still haven't had a chance to listen, but I'll have to check it out. He's yeah. great. It's good content. Dude can really sing. Nice. Well, three great picks, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll uh, put links for those down in the show notes. Lindsay Ellis, thanks so much for uh, for coming on the show. It's really nice having you here. Thank you for having me, and hopefully I'll see you guys when the theater reopens. We'll swoop out the cobwebs. <laughs> yeah, and the world the world comes back to us. Well, I'll we'll go see, see Hades Town again. Uh, I can't wait. <laughs> hopefully, the, I bet you know I bet the whole cast will still be there. They'll all just be like, ah, we're back. Thank God. <laughs> I bet they can't wait. Yeah, yeah. I really want to go. So hopefully, gotta finish happen. what I started. <laughs> they all talk like New York hucksters. <laughs> of course, of course. That's we got what we got to finish what we started, Bobby. That's how you get to be in that show. (laughs) And that'll do it for my chat with Lindsay Ellis. If you aren't familiar with her work, you should definitely check it out. Her YouTube channel is great. There's videos about all kinds of stuff. It's really, really good. Also check out Musical Splaining. It's a podcast that you might enjoy even if you're not someone who loves musical theater. Though if you're not someone who loves musical theater and you listen to this whole episode, I'm really impressed. Thanks for listening. Uh, Lindsay's also got a novel out called Axiom's End, and she's working on a second one, which is very cool. Uh, That should be out soon as well. Thank you all so much for listening, and to all of my patrons who make these bonus episodes possible, extra special thank you to all of you. All right, that's it for now. I will see you all next week for another episode of Strong Songs. 